typically have the stereotype like Spicoli or something, where, you know, this um, spacey, zoned out dude. Um, but the article was about that, uh, like surfers and people that, are, that have a surfing background are some of the best problem solvers out there because they they are typically always analyzing. Yeah, that's what you do when you're out there, and it's one of the things that is is very spiritual about surfing is that you you kind of got to focus like fly fishing. When people say they're out fly fishing, they forget about all their other problems. That was Ben Ferimsky talking about his background as a surfer. We get into Spicoli and the Fly Fishing Show today in episode 61 of the podcast. Welcome to the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Show, where you discover tips, tricks, and tools from the leading names in fly fishing today. We'll help you on your fly fishing journey with classic stories covering steelhead fishing, fly tying, and much more. How's it going, everyone? Thanks for stopping by the Fly Fishing Show. Please take a moment and head over to wetflyswing.com slash subscribe and subscribe so you don't miss any of the upcoming episodes. In today's show, I chat with Ben Ferimsky, the man behind the largest fly fishing show in the world. We talk about how the show came to be, Lefty Cray's influence on Ben's life, and how he judges success of each show. Ben talks about his home river, the Gunnison, dry fly fishing, and George Harvey. Don't miss this as Ben surprises me a bit when he talks about how he is approaching 300 species on the fly. So, without further ado, here's Ben Fremsky from theflyfishingshow.com. How's it going, Ben? Good, how are you? Good. Good to, uh, good to have you on the show. We, uh, we're getting up to uh, show season, I guess, uh, depending on when people listen to this, it might you know not be that season, but right now it is show season, and you guys... You know, the fly fishing show is probably, I'm not sure of the stats and all that, but I know it's one of the bigger, maybe the biggest uh, fly fishing show out there. But um, I want to touch on some of that. But before we get into it, maybe you can talk a little about how you got into fly fishing and then how all that came into the to the show. Mm-hmm. Sure. I, I started fly fishing um, from my dad mostly. Uh, he taught me as a kid, and I was, uh, I was probably fly fishing on my own by the time I was six or seven, uh, mostly for panfish and occasional, occasional bass in some uh, farm ponds that I fished in uh, uh, southwestern PA. And then I got into some saltwater fishing living in New Jersey. So uh, I had a well-rounded foundation early on. Nice. So you, uh, yeah, six or seven, that's pretty awesome on your own. And your dad, you mentioned he was part of the story behind the beginning of the fly fishing show is could you talk a little bit about how you know the beginning of of how all that came to be well yeah sure um my dad actually had a leather goods business and he uh was an avid fly fisherman and uh attended some sportsman shows with his business selling uh you know, different belts and wallets and things of that sort that were uh, towards the outdoor world. And uh, and through the two, he kind of saw a need to create a fly fishing specific event. I'd originally started doing a, uh, what he called Trout Masters Weekend that was more of a, a private, small session week long or a weekend long class limited limited to i forget how many people 
no more than a hundred. It might've been like 30 people. And uh, Lefty Cray was one of the original instructors and they spoke more. And he, he also um, said it would be great to do this type of event. So my dad started something called the Fly Fishers Symposium, which, which was at Seven Springs Mountain Resort in Pennsylvania. And it was a small fly fishing specific event and it went over really well. Uh, and around the same time, another guy was doing a small uh, event in central Pennsylvania, uh, Barry Serviente, to promote his, he was a bookseller in uh, in fly fishing, and he was kind of doing it on that to help promote his business. Uh, together, they kind of combined efforts, then they, they met through the grapevine and created the fly fishing show and had the first one in uh, Somerset, New Jersey, and we had it there for 25 years and, and just moved last year to Edison, New Jersey, when that facility mm. went away. Yep. Yep. And, and you also have a few other uh, shows around the country? Uh, yes, we have seven locations nationwide. And We started yeah. uh, last, last week in Denver, and uh, then we go to Marlboro, Massachusetts uh, next weekend. January 18th, 19th, and 20th. Uh, then we're in Edison, New Jersey, uh, the largest in the, uh, on the planet, actually. It's, hmm. it's the largest fly fishing consumer event right there. Okay. And as you said, we do we do produce the largest consumer fly fishing shows. Several of them all combined uh, are by far the largest, but several are large standalone events. Denver is a close second behind Edison now. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's January 25th, 26th, and 27th. Then we go to Atlanta, Georgia on February 1st and 2nd. That's our newest event, and it's its third year this year. Uh, Linwood, Washington after that, which is a Seattle area, February 16th and 17th. And then we move down to Pleasanton, California, which is the uh, Bay Area, February 22nd, 23rd, and 24th. And then we finish back in our home, uh, home state of Pennsylvania, March 9th and 10th. Gotcha. So you pack it all in within uh, a few months here. Yep. Yep. We, you know, most of the shows are done during the off season uh, as best as we can, mm-hmm. because uh, that's when people want to go to the shows. Uh, when, when fishing's hot, they're out doing that instead. Gotcha. Gotcha. That's cool. Okay. And, and back in the day, and what year was that when you you mentioned your dad and what, what was his name again? My dad or his partner? Yeah, your dad and his partner. Oh, my dad's Chuck Ferimsky, and his partner was Barry Serviente. Okay. And Barry retired a number of years ago, uh, I suppose like 10 years or more now. Uh, And then uh, my dad and I ran the show for a while. And uh, and then my dad dad, uh, retired about a year and a half ago. He still works with the show. He's more of like the... Um, figurehead and um, introduces all of our celebrities for us at the show. Mm-hmm. He, he'll never really retire fully yeah. because it's, you know, we consider ourselves the show family yeah. and uh, because we travel around for a couple of months together and everybody's hanging out and, and we get to be all really good friends. It's a small industry and, yeah. you know, we already have like interests. And uh, so he loves to be there and uh, I'm just doing all, all the behind the scenes work now. 
Nice, nice. And and your dad, I'm sure you've connected. You mentioned uh, Lefty Cray. I'm sure there's been plenty of other people that have influenced you. But what do you think has been the the biggest influence, uh, you know, from your dad as I'm sure a, a big mentor of yours over the years? Um, I would say my dad, uh, you know, he'd have to speak for himself, but I would say one of his biggest mentors was George Harvey. Hmm. Uh, George, George taught the fly fishing class at Penn State University, and my dad took it there. And I think that's really where he got his uh, foundation in, in fly fishing. He was already a fisherman and dabbled in fly fishing, I believe. But once he went to school there, um, he became a dedicated fly fisherman. Gotcha. Yeah, I've heard a little bit. We've talked a little bit about that that show, which is pretty unique, or the not the show, but the the education piece there in in, in PA, which mm-hmm. is pretty cool. And I, I had um, um, George Daniel on the podcast in a in a recent episode, and uh, we talked about that. That there's been you know a number of his mentors, or at least one big one, went through that. You know, was a uh, led that program. Um, yeah, George Daniel mm-hmm. was on in episode fifty five. Of, of this show, but yeah, it's pretty cool. And, and so for yourself, you know, as far as mentors with your dad, who, who else are there others that were kind of direct influences for you along the, you know, your time fly fishing? Oh, for me, I mean, obviously my dad and, uh, you know, and lefty and, um, also Joe Humphreys, who you referred to mm-hmm. George, uh, Joe took over from, uh, from George and uh in teaching the penn state class that's right uh, and uh taught it for a long time uh both george and joe are are headlining speakers for us at the fly fishing show so you can okay you can see them at different ones of our 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 events and uh you know everybody that i fish with you know spent spent a lot of time guiding and you know, even even beginners that I've fished with are influential because you can always learn from people and learn what they appreciate, as well as uh, looking at things to, through the through others' eyes to see you know what what they're what they're thinking about the fly fishing, whether it's um, just the environment that you're in or how they're how they're trying to make their cast or anything. You can always always learn in in order to be a good instructor you also have to be able to understand where someone's coming from in both their learning styles and just mm-hmm. how they're, they're viewing and appreciating something. So you're all, you're all, you should always be learning. And I think that's one of the most appealing things with, uh, with fly fishing. You, you know, I, I, I'm not a golfer, but uh, you know, a lot of people sometimes compare it. Um, and I can appreciate why people like golf because you can go out one day and have your best day ever and the next day just have a, a horrible time at it. Yeah. So you're always, you can always improve. You're never going to be the best. I mean, even if you are the best, there's always something else that you can challenge yourself with even more. So, you know, in fly fishing, because that you're in the natural environment instead of an artificial course. So nature is change constantly changing so you've got to learn things like hatches and deal with, you know, the, the environment a little bit more than you would in golf. So it's always, uh, always evolving. You're learning about the environment as well as the sport itself. So it's something that you can do for your whole life and always have something to learn, which I think is what, you know, attracts people to, to keep doing it. 
Yeah, that's those are those are good points. I, you know, I was thinking as you were talking there, um, just a little bit about you know that comparison to golf, and this is kind of a, a random one, but you know, Tiger Woods popped in my mind for some reason. But uh, you know, I guess uh, you know a little different story there. But just thinking about people sticking with it, because I know some people don't stick with fly fishing. Things happen. They. You know, I, I don't know if injuries are part of that, but um, do you see yourself, you know, as you, you know, you're doing what you do is sticking through this? I'm not sure how old you are now, but is this something you look at, look at doing for your entire life? Yeah, I, I believe so. I couldn't imagine not doing it. You know, it changes, uh, obviously, um, as you might get older, your physical capabilities could become more limiting. Um, you know, lately staring at a computer screen too much. My, my eyes are having a little trouble tying on fine tippet. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> I was famous for being able to tie on a fly with the smallest piece of tippet and like barely not even having to trim my knot, but now I need to use a little more line for that. <laughs> that's right. And, and how old are you? Me, I'm 46. Oh, 46. Yeah, you're you're still a young buck then. You got <laughs> you're about the time. You're about the age where yeah, the the glasses. That's about the 40s is where it starts hitting you pretty good. That's that's pretty uh, pretty funny. It's I'm the same. I couple of the last year or so kind of went to the glasses for fly tying, and it's actually been a game changer. So it's been great. Yeah. But, um, but um, yeah, yeah, but you know, yeah, yeah, I expect to be able to do it. Um, I might not be able to be as adventurous, you know, when I'm, you know, another however many years old or, or whatever might slow, slow a person down, but you can still do it. I mean, I've guided and worked with people with disabilities and I've, I've guided and, and taught people that are quite elderly and, they enjoy it quite a bit, so mm-hmm. it's something that you can do for a long time. It's just different levels. I mean, yeah. one, that's one of the appealing things. You know, you can't, you, you couldn't be a uh, a football player your whole life. Um, it, it's just going to be a little no. challenging, I think, if you got if you got tackled when you were eighty six by true. a twenty year old. But I could I could go fishing if I'm lucky enough to make it till I'm eighty six with a twenty year old and. and we could enjoy our time together. That's true. And both be doing the sport. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's a, that's a good point. Um, I wanted to jump in. We talked a little bit off air just about the Gunnison river as kind of one of your home rivers. But, um, before we jump into some of that, uh, some questions I had there, I just want to bring it back again to when the show started and you said, uh, your dad partnered up to, to do the show at the time. Were there any other shows going on or what, what was out there for people that might've been similar back in there? What was this the first time any of this like was ever even created? Uh, there were there was some sportsman shows, and that was about it. Uh, there may have been some small local fly fishing events through clubs and things like that, but not really a major national or even international event to that level. Okay, and not for you, consumers. Not for consumers. And you guys, are you thinking potentially internationally? Oh uh, no. Some of our shows are international. They're all they're all based within the U.S., but we really draw internationally, especially our Edison show in New Jersey because it's just outside of uh, Newark and New York, so it's easy access for international customers. Uh, Denver's growing on that a bit. Yeah. 
Um, but as far as taking, you know, it, it kind of depends it. on where the flights are. Yeah, I'm they, expecting Atlanta to get an international flavor to it. Gotcha, gotcha. But you're not expecting to to travel ad and travel over to Europe or anything like that to do a, a show there. No, just the, the business side of it, you know, gets complicated with all the international rules, and it's just a little more than I want to dive into right now. Gotcha, gotcha. But uh, we yeah. get re- we get requests for it. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm sure. I'm sure that's the thing. It's a worldwide, especially you know, as I get into, I'm starting to get into kind of a destination type season here on the show, and you know, I've inter- talking to people from all around, you know, fishing Africa. I mean, pretty much every spot um, of the world, you know, we're kind of it seems like out there, people are fishing it now with on the fly. Um, I'm not sure of your history. It sounds like you've done a little bit of saltwater fishing. Maybe we could touch on that a little bit as as if we have time towards the end. But um, uh, you know, I did want to. Uh, one more question there on the show, as far as, you know, if you think about the show today, and I guess you could pick any of the ones you talk about, whether that's Denver or Edison or whatever, but how would you describe the show to somebody who's never been to it before? Well, each and every show is different. Um, but yet each and every show has similar things. Like if you talk about a, um, you know, a major manufacturer, an international brand, their presence at each and every show is pretty similar that they, they may attend. Um, so, you know, if you wanted to go see, for example, Patagonia and talk to them about their new, their new award-winning Danner boot, it's going to be the same at every show, but you are also going to see at every one of our shows, different celebrities, different speakers, different fly tires, um, you know, different casters and authors, and uh, different retailers that are more regional. The retailers tend to be of a somewhat regional uh, range, not always. Um, So you're talking to your local stores, perhaps, as well as outfitters that that vary from show to show. Uh, So you might be able to go in and talk to an outfitter from Alaska at several of our shows, but they may may not be at all of them due to... uh, you know, reason, different reasons that are budgets for attending the shows. Um, but you also may talk to uh, someone like say in Denver, that's a guide on the Arkansas river locally. Um, so there's a lot of local flavor at every show as well as international and national people. Uh, we have customers that have the opportunity to attend different ones and they choose to do that because they are, uh, they can see something different at every show and they'll plan it out in advance to see what's different at each one rather than getting the repeats. However, if they do see something um, that's a talk that might be at both, but they found it really good at one and so informative, they want to go see it again to get more information because they didn't, they couldn't absorb it all. They'll go see the same one again. We have people that do that all the time. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. And do you make it around to all the shows? Are you actually physically there or who is the, you know, the person kind of running the things on the ground? Oh yeah. That's, that's me. I've got to be there for all of them. Okay. Okay. It's a a busy couple of months of travel. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. What, what is the, what's the best and the worst thing about the, uh, you know, the show season? Um, well, the, I'll tell you the worst thing. I do like to travel to uh, to fish. It's one of my one of my things. I, I, I travel all over the the globe fishing, and uh, when I'm done traveling for you know 
two and a half months every week, I kind of want to stay at home and it takes away from like my desire to, uh, to maybe travel to go fishing. Hmm. So that's, that's really one of the worst things is I don't want to go away. Um, yep. when I might even have an opportunity to go fish somewhere gotcha. and I really want to, it's just the motivation is gone to go and get on a plane again. Mm-hmm. Um, that's probably the worst thing. Best thing is, uh, just seeing everybody helping, you know, share the sport to new people and, and bring education and information to, uh, to all levels. But we always, you know, it's, when the show season starts as it did um, just uh, two weeks ago or a week, I guess a week and three days ago was our first, uh, first show in Denver. And, you know, you're, you're loading up for that and you're like, Ooh, man, it's show season again. And when we all get there, it's great to see our friends. And like I say, we're a show family. So everybody enjoys the company and we look forward to it. And once we're there, we're kind of excited to see everybody and, you know, motivated for, for the show season. Nice. And what are some of the, if you had to say some of the big attractions, it sounds like it varies between, you know, um, events, but I guess if you had to say the, the Washington state event, I think you mentioned the Linwood, um, are there any special attractions that people can expect for that one or, or any things that kind of bring more people in? Well, there's certain attractions at each event that are slightly different. But the bigger attractions are generally the same. They might be different topics or different people doing it. But our big attractions are, as I mentioned, education. So we have a lot of seminars and presentations going on at any given time, uh, more than you could ever see in a whole weekend. Uh, You know, so I, I had a good buddy who's gotten into fly fishing for a couple of years and finally got to make it to our Denver show. And he's actually been doing some, you know, part-time work with us. And it was the first time he got to make one of the events. And he came up to me after the first day and he's like, man, if you just go to two or three of the seminars, he's like, that's more than worth it for your ticket value. And, you know, we've got hundreds of those going on throughout the weekend. Mm -hmm. And um, so attending the seminars is a big draw. And we have information that can range from, you know, educational stuff on techniques to destinations, uh, all kinds of different topics that you can, you can go and see. So if you were going with a couple of buddies and you wanted to plan a, to plan a destination trip, you can go and see a bunch of things that might be in a, in the realm of what you want to do. Like if you wanted to go travel North for, you know, rainbows or Arctic char or something like that. Or if you wanted to go to the tropics or the jungle, you can go see, presentations and all those and decide what's most attractive to you. Um, you could also, uh, go see stuff, um, on all the presentations of fly fishing or the techniques used for the, all those different types of destinations. Uh, one of my favorites to always visit are the fly tires. We have demonstration fly tires going on throughout the day at every show. So there's some that you might be able to see repeats, but they're always different ones at every show. And you can see local or national fly tires or international fly tires demonstrating their techniques. And there's always something you can learn from them. Um, 
we have things like the International Fly Fishing Film Festival that happens at every one of our shows. So that's an after after hours event that's a lot of fun to attend. Um, nice. All those different things are draws. Gotcha. There's yeah, always those are awesome. There. Those are awesome. Yeah. As well as it's you know it's an opportunity to test all the new product more mm-hmm. so than you can anywhere. As well as talking to the people, you might go and talk to the person that literally designed the fly rods for a manufacturer instead of talking to someone at a shop that's got his information, you know, third, fourth hand, he might be explaining it very well, but it's always interesting to talk to the person that literally designed the fly rod from square one. That's awesome. Yeah, this is a, this is a great pitch for your show. I've, uh, I'm hopefully, I think I'm going to be up there to the Washington uh, event this year and, and yeah, I think you just pitched a real great, anybody that's listening to this, it sounds like there's a ton of useful information out there. If somebody wanted to find out ahead in advance, like what, what events and what speakers, where would they go to find, is that someplace they can go online to find that? Yeah, if you go to our website at flyfishingshow.com and click on each event that you or may be interested in attending, we have bios and photos of all the celebrities and all the fly tires as well as schedules of all the events that are going on uh maybe um special events you could look at or or you can look at all the seminars and all the uh casting demonstrations or featured fly tire demonstrations but we also have other things that are continuously running all the time that aren't necessarily listed on the website but looking in advance is a great way to plan it out because there is more than you can see in a day yeah Uh, we've got a lot i get a lot of people that come for the first time they tell me that they they come for the first time and they'll plan a couple of hours in the afternoon thinking that they're that's enough to go visit it because they maybe have done some smaller local events and that's adequate time and they get there and they're completely overwhelmed and they (laughs) always tell me that the next year they play on the whole weekend yeah. so you can get to get to appreciate it. So is that if you had to give somebody a tip or two about how to get the most out of your event, if they're going there for the first time, what, what would that be? Look at the schedules of all the presentations and see what intrigues you the most and, and schedule that out for throughout your day. So you have a schedule, like say at 11 o'clock, you wanted to go see, um, Joe Humphrey's cast. And then at two o'clock, he wanted to see George Daniel talk about, uh, nymphing. So, you know, you can schedule that stuff out and make a plan and then, uh, just, just plan more time than you think you need, because you're always going to wonder, uh, wander around a little bit and get caught up in conversations and anybody that's been around the sport for some time, you'll you'll run into friends and make new friends and oh, that's yeah. that's part of it as well so yeah. you end up getting caught up in conversations and it takes you a while to get around the show floor that's right that's right yeah George, I, I like that you mentioned george daniel Diffie. i i had had him on as i mentioned and uh the one thing he said was uh, he said I don't want to talk about nipping when we do the interview. So <laughs> George, obviously <laughs> he's, he's done a lot of that and known for it, but that kind of gets me thinking about, you know, must be a challenge for you. I know it is for me, but how do you choose the, the guests and the topics that you're covering at, at each of your events? Oh, it is a challenge. Uh, I mean, I schedule, I schedule day long presentations. Uh, well, days full of presentations, I, sh- I should say for, uh, literally hundreds of people, uh, and so it's it takes a lot of effort. It's like building a 
uh, you know, with without a plan and you got to create something there. I try to, uh, I try to pick topics and as well as speakers that are well-rounded, uh, uh, different disciplines. And what we try to do or what I try to do is create something that appeals for everybody. So across the day, you can find something from, for a beginner to an expert, advanced angler, uh, and everything in between, uh, techniques that you use in all of your fly fishing. There might be something that's saltwater. It could be something, you know, you talk about like the Linwood show. We definitely have stuff that involves, um, sea run, you know, like the sea yeah. run fish, like steelhead and salmon out there, which, you know, I might not focus on as much in Denver because it's not necessarily, mm-hmm. you know, as, as popular of a, of a game fish here because we don't really have them. Um, but people still, we still do have talks on it and people travel for it. So you can always find it. Yeah. It may be just of, of how highly it is on the, the featured presentation schedule, um, and the size of the room capacity. So I factor all those things in and try to make a good schedule, avoid conflicts of topics. Um, you know, if, if we have two or three topics on flats fishing, one could be on the Bahamas and one could be on Belize. Uh, you know, one could be on Christmas Island. I try not to make them all at the same time. So if there's a particular person it is looking for during a flats trip somewhere, they can go see the, them all as best as we can make it work and uh, and get different angles and perspectives on similar topics. Gotcha. So, yeah, I was going to check in with you. So I think we talked off air. You mentioned the Gunnison is, is one of your home rivers. Um, you know, if you take the Gunnison and think about, you know, it sounds like you've done some guiding and things like that. Uh, if somebody was, I guess, at the Denver show and they wanted to learn some, you know, some tips or, you know, tips and tricks on fishing the Gunnison or, or rivers that are similar, would you have some resources, um, you know, that they could dig in there and maybe you can just provide some general tips about, you know, fishing that system. Oh, sure. I mean, you mean for me personally or at the shows, because yeah. at, at, you know, at the Denver show, we had numerous talks on the Gunnison, oh, okay. yeah. uh, different stretches of it from, you know, the upper stretches where I am, uh, and where, what is my local water to down through the black Canyon and Gunnison Gorge and, in the lower stretches, uh, there are presentations on that, but you know, the, the, it is my home water. And, you know, one of the things that I like about the Gunnison in particular is it's uh faster river. I like to fish faster water. I enjoy that and the challenge of that. And it's also a very good dry fly river. Hmm. So I mean, you know, there's been years where I basically never threw anything but dry flies, maybe a cool. dropper but never even a nymphing rig. Huh. And what is, what is faster river? What does that mean? Is it just kind of lots of, lots of white water, lots of rapids? Yeah. Yeah. A lot of pocket water, mm-hmm. faster flowing, a lot of, a uh, lot of different currents to read. And, uh, it's not as much like slick meandery pools, but you can find that as well. Gotcha. Okay. And how do you typically, what's your best advice for catching fish or, you know, how do you catch fish there? Are you kind of doing a lot of nymph? You said you do some dry. Do you do, is that mostly what you do? Or are there more effective ways to catch fish there? Um, yeah, no, mostly dry fly, mostly dry fly dropper fishing. Okay. I do on the Gunnison. That's kind of my, my specialty there because we do have a lot of 
fairly shallow water compared to some other major rivers and uh, you can access as far as uh, depth with a nymph off of a dry fly just as well and then you also have the opportunity to catch the fish on the dry fly and a lot of times you know we'll we'll start out with a dry fly dropper and you'll be catching more on the dropper and as the hatch progresses your action turns into the dry fly may even take the dropper off and fish the dry and then once the hatch finishes up, go back to having the nymph. So, gotcha, gotcha. And that's you, uh, that's kind of. And I, I saw some of the Ferimsky's BDE. Is that um, is that a pattern? I wasn't sure if that yeah. was is that if that was your pattern, or do you have a few patterns of kind of your go to patterns you like to use? And is, is that one of yours? Yes, it is. That is. Um, it, it stands for best dry ever. Actually. Oh, there you go. <laughs> um, and uh it is i've designed quite a few flies over the years and that's probably the one that i'm most proud about it's different it's a different pretty unique design from most other fly patterns that are out there and it floats incredibly well in fast water even with a dropper but at the same time it's a sparse uh, low riding fly that takes very technical fish so it kind of reaches, a, it's a broad reaching pattern. Uh, it's, it's a sort of a generic mayfly pattern, like a, like a parachute Adams might be, but a little more technical. And, um, you know, you can match it specifically to certain mayfly hatches without ever having to know any entomology, entomology at all, because you could look and say, as long as you know it's a mayfly, you could look at it and say, well, it's about yay big and about this color and look in your box and just pick one that's about that color and about that size and you're good to go. Gotcha. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah, that, that's cool. So it's a, like, yeah, it's yeah. a good pattern. It, I designed it here on the, uh, on the Gunnison specifically for, uh, for one hatch, but it's turned into a fly that I carry in a number of colors and a number of sizes and it's been fished all over the all over the planet for our trout very successfully. Nice. Nice. Okay. And what about a couple of, if you had a fishing tip or two, do you have anything generally, if you could, I guess, think about the Gunnison, you know, somebody that's trying to get into a few more fish that you, you would give somebody new, or maybe something you give to a client if you're guiding them. Mm-hmm. A, a tip that I would give them for yeah, that? Yeah. Yeah. Maybe like a general thing. If you say you have somebody new to the you know river, you're taking them on, um, Anything generally you kind of throw out there when you're getting going to help them get into more fish? Well, that's a, that's a tough question, but I actually do have something, and that would be learning how to do a reach mend mm. uh, in in your cast. Simply because with the fast water that we fish here a lot, you you oft, almost every one of my casts has some sort of um, mend line manipulation to it because of multiple currents. And if you're used to fishing water that has a little more of a steady current and you don't have to do much mending, uh, you're going to get a lot of drag when you come to the Gunnison. And the fish can be fairly aggressive, but, uh, you know, as a guide, I would see fish chasing after flies time and time again and then turning away because the drag was just not so much that it was spooking the fish, but it was pulling away from the strike zone before they got a chance to even get it. Yep. So they'll turn and chase it and try to grab it and miss it. And if you can just get a, re- a, a good reach mend or something that presents the fly for an accurate 
quality drift for even a couple of feet, you almost always have the fish. Gotcha. Gotcha. Um, yeah. And getting back to, you know, you mentioned lefty Cray, obviously, you know, he, he passed away recently and, you know, it was a big loss for, for everybody. You know, I'm starting to hear some of the amazing stories. I'm sure you, you know, a lot of them about him, but you know, and this might be a tough question for you as well, but who is the next, you know, who's the next star? I mean, in star is not a good way to put it, but you know, I mean, lefty Cray, obviously you can't fill his shoes, but you know, who, who are the other people out there that are kind of at, at his level that kind of are going to help, you know, fill the gap a little bit. Well, there's plenty of people that can are, are filling the gap, but I don't believe there'll ever be another person uh, like Lefty Cray, mm-hmm. uh, simply because the effort and the work that he had to put forth to to get where he was doesn't yeah. even exist anymore. I mean, he was a writer, he was a photographer, he he, he managed events and did. You know, he was an advisor for companies and help people design equipment, and you know, he did everything. He really, he really spoke uh, heavy to proteges, let's say, about making sure they were diverse in in fly fishing and didn't specialize too much in in one category, so they could be, you know, used for more things, but what he did and what he had to do to be, to reach the level of expertise that he got, you really, it, it's, it's too easy for people to be part of that rather than all of it because of the internet for the most part. Um, you know, I refer sometimes to a lot of people that are just armchair experts. You, you don't know whether there's someone that's out there that's touting a bunch of information uh, on something that, they've never even done um, or whether they're a a true expert on it. And when Lefty was doing it, he had to travel. He had to go to the places he had to do it. And at that time, people looked forward to articles by certain, you know, celebrities that make have come out in national publications every week or every month. And that was the only source that they had. So, if you were looking forward to the article that came out every month in a, in a like field and stream or something there, that's the one guy and the one expert that everybody's looking towards where you can find as many articles from thousands of people, you know, in the time we finish this discussion online. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's I, and I was just thinking one of the stories. Yeah. Go ahead. I was just going to say, so the credentials just aren't, you, you can't really earn the credentials anymore the way he had to. Yeah. Yeah. Is there, it's just something that's going to never be the same. So it can't be another lefty. <laughs> no, definitely not. And that one of the stories that I just recall, I interviewed Flip Pallet on, you know, and he told this amazing story about how it was crazy. I mean, he, he survived hurricane Andrew literally like in his house. And the story was that Lefty, Lefty somehow made it in like the day after, you know, when nobody else could make it to the area because of such a disaster and gave uh, gave Flip $25,000 and said, basically, you know, you need it more than me. You know, that one, I mean, that one definitely brings some goosebumps to you thinking about, you know, that sort mm-hmm. of stuff. So, yeah, no, for sure. You can't you can't replace, you know, Lefty. Um, would you say, I mean, who who are the people up there that I mean, there's so many. Te- I mean, I've interviewed, uh, I think you're, you know, you, I'm getting close to 60 or wherever I'm at. And they've all been pretty amazing. I mean, who do you think does anybody stick out? Mm-hmm. And I guess maybe that's a hard thing for you to say. But I think of 
I guess Flip Powell, you know, as somebody who's been around a while, do you just look at the old timers? I mean, you know, I know there's a lot of new people coming up. Well, there's both. Yeah, exactly. There's both. There's both. And for the show, I try to make that well-rounded. There's newcomers and, uh, and obviously we have to have some of the well-established people that have been experts for a long time because their name is a big draw to the show. And that's why we want to have them there. And that's why we had Lefty there. No one was a bigger Joe Humphrey. Yeah, exactly. Joe. But, you know, there's, there's, you know, everyone has their specialty. I mean, even lefty, you know, his specialty was obviously casting. Yeah. But I always um, said about lefty when people asked me different questions about celebrity speakers, you know, lefty was probably one of the most well-rounded fly fishermen. He's fished all over the planet for all different kinds of uh, people. He was also uh, a journalist and uh, good at gathering information. So, you know, you could ask Lefty about fishing for nearly any species of fish, and he probably had some useful information for you. But, I mean, you talk about, like, Joe Humphreys, and he is a diehard trout fanatic. I mean, he's fished a bit for, you know, other things, but, uh, you know, he's a friend of mine, and I know, you know, his saltwater experience is, you know, fairly limited. Gotcha. So, but he he is a master of trout. Fishing. Has he ever has he ever slapped you in the face to pump you up? I, I heard George George tell that story how he'd he'd slap him around a little bit to get him get him jacked up. That was pretty funny. <laughs> well, he he's still uh, you know is still very athletic and yeah. I don't know if he even still does some wrestling, but I know he uh, he, he still goes to all the wrestling matches at Penn State, and he was a uh, he was uh, on the wrestling team and a wrestling coach, so yep. he he's definitely a uh, a feisty uh, feisty guy for sure. That's cool. That's cool. Yeah. So I mean, obviously, you guys have a. Ton. I know uh, yeah. he just had a back surgery. He just had a back surgery because he shot a shot a deer and uh, during hunting season this fall and. I'm not even sure how old he is now. I forget off the top of my yeah. head, so I don't want to say it wrong. But yeah. but he was out there dragging the deer, carrying a deer down the mountain himself, and injured his back. So yeah, I mean, I'm when I'm his age, I'm I just hope I'm I'm still around. I know, I know. I hear <laughs> but it'll you. be great to be that uh, that active. I hear you. Yeah, I was. Uh, I'm just looking up. Um, I want to get the show notes. I'll have a link for uh, some of the stuff we talk about here um, in the show notes. And uh, this one will be at, um, I think we're putting this at uh, uh, number 64. So at uh, wetflyswing.com slash 64, I'll have some links to Joe and people can check out, uh, connect with him there. Um, Yeah. But so as far as, you know, obviously Joe Humphreys and all these people, you know, there's some amazing speakers. How would somebody, you know, how do you find potentially the new up and comers? And then also how would somebody who's interested, maybe they're a new guide or maybe they're interested in getting involved. How would they find you? And then how do you find them? Well, it's a little bit of both. Um, most of, most of the people reach out to us because we do have a, a good reputation. So I'm fortunate in that aspect. Um, but sometimes I hear about some people that are good or get recommendations from other speakers more than anything and, and will reach out to somebody. Uh, or it might be a particular category that I'm looking for someone to speak on. And, uh, you know, and I'll have to search around to, to help round out the, 
the list of speakers at the show. So a little bit of both. Um, Most, you know, obviously the big, biggest names like, you know, Gary Border and Joe Humphreys and stuff like that. uh, We, we all know, and they're, they're, they've been on our list for years and speaking with us. Yep. Yep. And those are the names that, some of those guys draw a good crowd. I'm sure I had uh, Gary Borger on as well, and he did a real cool breakdown on nymphing and some of the history there, which was really interesting. And um, so, yeah, that, that that makes sense. I guess you know, if somebody wanted to get involved or maybe potentially speak or present something, the, the best thing would be to shoot you an email and just let you know what what they have going. And and actually, mm-hmm. the networking piece probably is a good uh, thing too. Just get out to some of these shows and. Um, you know, obviously you got to put your time in if you're going to, you know, do anything. So, um, you know, connecting with people Mm -hmm. is probably a a good start as well. Yeah. Having a developing a reputation. If you're, if you're going to be one of our headline speakers, uh, we're, we're putting you in that position because whether it's your topic or your name, or ideally a combination of the two are going to draw people through, through the door. Yeah. That's kind of your job as, as a headline speaker. Yep. So developing a good reputation in advance and, and doing some other events is important. But, you know, it's also not just your expertise on the topic, but you talk about Gary Borger. He was a professor all of his life. Right. There's nobody that's a better instructor out there. So, you know, he's very comfortable speaking to a crowd. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's That's other things that are important. I mean, there's thousands of awesome, awesome casters out there, but not everybody can go onto a casting pond and do a, uh, a casting demo that like lefty did where, you know, he's got jokes, he's entertaining the crowd, he's teaching everybody's, you know, interested. He doesn't bore them and he's teach you know, and he's doing a good demo all at the same time. So the better, the better instructors, the better presenters are good instructors. They're good teachers. They're good at entertaining the crowd. There's a lot more to it than just being good at what you do. Yeah. Gotcha. Gotcha. And, and for all the stuff you guys have on, um, you know, all the events and stuff, do you have anything where this is provided, uh, kind of virtually where there's recordings of any of this, where people could, you know, either see it or pay it, or do you have ideas in the future to do that? Put that out there for people who can't attend the show. I have, um, and sometimes there's some stuff that's posted, uh, usually through third parties. A lot of people will post oh, some yeah. of the stuff that they've seen at our, at our shows, and we don't, we don't mind that. Uh, we are looking at possibly doing that and, and talking about Lefty. I, I actually have access to all of Lefty's presentations over the years, uh, and we're thinking about providing some of those to, to people through our website. But yeah. figuring out how we're going to do that, and and they are just his his PowerPoint presentation or you know slideshow that he used to have in, in a digital format, but without Lefty there narrating it, it's different. Yeah. Um, but you know I can I can watch some of them and I can even remember some of the jokes that he might say on certain slides and things like that. So they're still they're still neat for me to look at or people that may have seen him do a presentation. But um, a lot of the stuff, if you were going to see it virtually, you don't get the full appreciation of it. And, you know, I mentioned the fly tires are one of my favorite things. You can see, you could go on YouTube or anywhere and see hundreds of fly tying videos. But 
if you ask any of those fly tires, and I've had this discussion with many of them, they, they, they have very popular channels. They, they will tell you, you're never going to get as much from that as you would seeing them in person. You know, you might get a good recipe and you might be able to tie that fly, but you can't interact with them and ask questions about why they selected the material. They, there might be little tricks that you never even catch that if, you, if you're watching them live, you could be like, wait, what did you just do there? And they'll be like, oh, this. And, it, yeah. you know, they, it's something that they may assume you have learned already in fly time, but you never did. And it can make a world of difference in your fly. Yep. So there's tons of little things like that that you get from a live presentation. And that's what I've really been trying to um, let people understand and learn over the last couple of years with the availability of online information. That when you come to the show, the information that you get one-on-one or even in a seminar with 100 to 1 or whatever the crowd might be, you can still, you know, raise your hand or shout out or be involved. And, you know, ultimately, you may even make a friend out of some uh, mm-hmm. somebody that's showing you, you know, a demonstration. And you're not going to, that's not really happening if you're just watching a video. Yep. Yeah, no, I think that's there's no substitute for the in-person stuff, and whether, whether it's a fly fishing event or any other event, yeah, you gotta make the still even with all the online resources, you, you know, nothing uh, is better than shaking somebody's hand and having a drink or whatever. So that's cool. Um, what do you think as far as a resource? Obviously, you guys are a huge resource for a lot of people. Are there any? I mean, another show or something out there that maybe isn't your own show that um, is, is another good uh, event to go to? And and also, is there any other resources you'd recommend for people? Um, yeah, I mean, obviously, I, I, I support any and every show that's out there. We're all complimentary to each other. You can get some of the same stuff that we provide at, at other smaller events, uh, you know, local trout unlimited venues and things like that, mm-hmm. where you can have a good source of information and also connect with people to, uh, to go out on the water and make those friends. Like I'm saying, uh, you may, you may talk with a fly tire and it's like, well, let's, you know, then you find out you live or fish the same waters and, and you connect and go out. And that's where you really can develop a, like kind of a, a mentoring relationship with somebody. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, obviously there's sources online and in print where you can get all kinds of information and, you know, it's really limitless. I'm a, I'm a fan of a lot of books. So mm-hmm. I kind of like to collect fly fishing books. I don't get to read them as much as I would like just due to time. And yeah. quite frankly, being a slow reader, but yep. those are always a, a wealth of information. That's right. What's your, uh, you have, uh, did your book, uh, do you have a library there of a, like a full wall of books sort of thing? Is that if somebody was to walk into your, into your house or your room, is that, is that what you're looking at or, or, you know? Yeah, yeah. I do. I do. <laughs> okay. Does anything come off the top of your head? Just of a book that, you know, is maybe one of your favorite books or a recent one you've, you know, Oh, read? Not, not necessarily because there's, there's so many different topics. It could be favorite. I mean, you could have yeah. something that's just, you know, entertaining to read, like anything from, uh, John Girard, right. or you could have educational stuff. I mean, right now I've kind of been, um, 
reading through uh, Jason Randall's uh, uh, nymphing book, um, yep. Tips from the Experts. Uh, I was actually featured in that for dry fly dropper fishing. He came out and wrote about using using a nymph as a dropper with me on the Gunnison. Mm-hmm. Um, he fished he fished with George in there in uh, and, and a number of experts that that he actually met and and got to be friends with through doing the shows with us. So, you know, even the ad- experts create a, a network through the people that they meet at our shows. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, that that's more of a techniques book. So I like to, to browse through that. Um, and I'm, but I'm looking at some of that stuff differently than most people because I'm not only looking at um, the information, but I look at some of the information as a way to analyze whether someone would be a good speaker for a show. Oh, right. Right. Yeah. So if they present a good book or article, then you probably feel good that they'd also present good at in person. Yeah. As, as a start, at least how the, the way that they present the information. So I might be intrigued by an article or read through an article on something that's, you know, I've been fly fishing basically my whole life and I might read through something that's, presented towards beginners that I'm really not going to get much out of. Uh, you can always find a tip here too, or a different way to look at something, but I'm looking at it more to see how they present their information and whether it's, it's good to a general audience. And I, and I think it's presented well, so they would draw people in and, and keep them entertained during the presentation. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, and I was thinking, as you mentioned, the, uh, the Portland, I guess the sportsman shows are a little bit different than the fly fishing shows where they cover a little mm-hmm. bit of, um, you know, a little bit of everything. It's not just, uh, it's not just fly fishing, but you know, fishing in general and mm-hmm. hunting and everything. Um, I have noted, I've had a couple people just talking about the Portland show. We've seen, I think that over the years, the fly fishing, I'm, I'm not sure exactly what's happened, but it seems like it's slowly been, you know, kind of devolving or whatever, maybe less less of a fly fishing connection. Do you know, uh, do you see that at all? Or have you heard about it at all that some of the other events are, aren't uh, fly fishing isn't as strong? And do you see that yours is still growing at a, at a certain rate? I do see that. Uh, one of the reasons that we get from the exhibitors there is, uh, and I'm not specifically talking about this for uh, the Portland show, but when I say they're um, at sportsman shows is, you know, the fly fishermen, are, are fairly specific in what they're looking for. Uh, of course, many are, are outdoorsmen that, that may enjoy all aspects of a, of a sportsman show, and I think they're vital to the industry. But the, a lot of the, the exhibitors that are, are, have a very specific fly fishing only product find that when they go to a sportsman show, they have to weed through a crowd oh, yeah. to find those that are interested in their product. Right. Whereas when they come to a fly fishing specific event, every person is their customer. Yeah. So, you know, you don't find yourself just, you know, shooting the breeze with somebody that's never going to be interested in your product. You know, you might hope so, but you're trying to yep. explain to them what fly fishing is. Yeah. While you're a couple of good customers have come and gone because you were busy, you know, getting your ear bent by someone, you That's know, just talking, talking about something random. Yeah. yeah. 
So, you know, the exhibitors are more, it's not that the need isn't there, and, um, but the exhibitors are more finding that they're getting a better return on their investment into being at a show when it's 100% fly fishing specific. I see. So I do see that trend in the, the sportsman shows. They also, you know, often are set aside in a smaller area and they, they just don't yep. get as strong of a traffic flow. Right. Um, and the other thing that we find is uh, we, we try to limit our shows to the maximum of three days. And many, especially the big sportsman shows can be a week long mm-hmm. and, it's it's a lot of it's a lot of work for um, people if their business is kind of spread out over the same days when they could do the same in three days at a smaller show or gotcha. one of our specific fly fishing shows. Gotcha. What would be a recommendation you might give to somebody at a sportsman show who's kind of in the same position as you if they wanted to grow grow the fly fishing uh, component? Um. So you mean if uh, if uh, if there's someone that's in the event production side trying to grow the fly fishing? Yeah, yeah, I'm not sure. If, show I'm not or, sure if that's yeah if that, if that's where you know they're going. But just you know hypothetically, if somebody wanted to do that, would there be a tip you might give them to you know? Uh, oh man, I, I mean, I would really focus if I was doing uh, putting on an event that's you know outdoors in general. I would do in all categories, a lot more introduction, lower level presentations, mm. yep. simply because you've got a diverse audience. Mm-hmm. So I'd, I'd want to intrigue people and bring them into the, any sport, whether it be, you know, rock climbing or, um, you know, archery or fly fishing. I'd be thinking about people that were attending there that, maybe have they haven't done it before they're there maybe they're an archer and they want to they're intrigued by fly fishing or vice versa but they're at the show for the other category then they're just interested so i'd really try to focus on a lot more um introductory stuff to help bring people into the sport that's going to benefit everybody gotcha yeah that's a great that's a great uh way to put it a great tip whatever um uh okay and um and uh, I'm getting ready to do a quick look. Do you have a little bit of time for a kind of a rapid fire round here? Sure. Yeah, good, good. Um, I think, um, just had a few questions I, uh, would, would be good to touch base on. I think, you know, I was, there's so much with, you know, the fly fishing show, you know, so many questions that keep coming up for me that I think, you know, obviously this episode is focused on that. I think when you mentioned the, the, the I guess the niching down part of it, it's kind of like my show, you know, it's a fairly niched, it's fly fishing. And that's what I talk about is everything mm-hmm. around fly fishing. So the people that listen to it are super laser focused you know, on fly fishing for the most part. There's probably some people mm-hmm. that are, are new to it, but I know from the people that I talk to, I get direct feedback, you know, and, and that's how I choose some of my topics. I listen to them. Um, so that, that helps me. And that helps me as I look at, you know, potentially getting more sponsors and things like that. I would imagine for you, you probably have no trouble. Uh, I'm not sure how the sponsorship piece works for you, but, um, you know, do you see that you guys, you know, as you, if you go back when you were starting to grow that, you know, that was a big component, um, of you being a, a very niched, um, kind of community, or maybe you can just speak to that whole sponsorship and how you guys kind of make money at your shows on top of, um, I guess, is, is it the individual sales? Is that where the bulk of the revenue comes from? Well, for, for us, 
particularly um, you know, bulk of our revenue comes from ticket sales. Yeah. So when we when we create our event, we're we're going into it and investing into it the same as our exhibitors, except for uh, at a at a much higher level. Um, exhibitors, you know, do pay for booths and things like that, uh, and we do have some sponsorship for different categories and things like that. But sponsorship is is by far um, not vital to okay. our existence. Um, it's something that we're looking to possibly grow, but at the same time, within the fly fishing industry specifically, there's not a lot of uh, sponsorship dollars out there. Yeah. So, you know, we don't really push people hard for that. We'd rather them be attending the show and investing in it individually in ways to help promote it. So when we walk in the show show floor, you know, the the, the funds that we generate from exhibitors and right. booth fees and those things are, are just basically paying for the costs that we put into their, their space, like oh, gotcha. decorator fees and, you know, and, and facility rentals and all of that kind of stuff. Um, so we're walking into the show, you know, just as invested uh, as anybody else hoping um, that a lot of people come through the, through the door and, which, you know, interesting in some of the questions you've asked that one of the, uh, one of the questions that we get from new exhibitors all the time is how many people come through the door. And this is kind of like, you know, relevant to our sportsman show analogy, but I all that, that's a question that we always think is the, the worst question that a new exhibitor could be worrying about for attending a show. Mm-hmm. Because I mean, let's just say you were selling a, a fly reel and you know, and I have a ticket fee to come in and, you know, if a million people came through the door, I would have a fantastic show um, for sure. But if out of that a million people, only one person decided to buy a fly reel from you, yep. you may That's have a good. terrible show. That's right. But if a hundred people came through the door, I might have a terrible show. But if a hundred of those people, all, every one of them bought a fly reel from you, you might be raving about how fantastic it is. Yeah. So it's all relevant to your demographic. And that's why I say, you know, with our shows being 100% fly fishing, if you have any interest in fly fishing, um, it's a great show for you. You're going to find something there for you, no matter what your skill level or ability level or, or you know, ed- education on the sport is. Uh, and then if you're a fly fishing company of whatever category, you, you're reaching all your customers. So, you know, we, that's, that's, what's more important is to make sure your demographic matches what you're, what you're offering. And, you know, we have tons of people that offer to exhibit at our show that do everything from install windows to sell insurance. Um, and, you know, we really try to make the application process um, in a way that we can control that it's a hundred percent fly fishing. I hear you. Yeah, no, I love that you put it that way because there's, whenever people talk about the amount of people you need to, you know, whether it's growing a business or just some sort of a, a community, uh, there's a interesting article. It's called A Thousand True Fans by Kevin Kelly. I, I may have mentioned this in the past episodes, but it's really cool. And his premise is basically that, you know, you don't need a, ma- a million people or, you know, or 10 million to, to grow something, you know, that can support if it is a business that can support it. Really, you just need a thousand true fans, right? You know, those people that are so dedicated mm-hmm. that they love your stuff, they love what you're doing and that they're sharing your message. 
And, um, you know, I think you, mm -hmm. you said it just there that you guys are obviously pretty huge. Well, the biggest fly fishing show in the world, but there's probably a lot of companies out there that could, um, do a good job just finding those thousand people or whatever that number is. So no, it, it, thanks for, thanks for your perspective. I, I appreciate that. Yeah, um, it could be less too. And, you know, and for our exhibitors, there's, there's different things that I look at as well. If someone's there selling fly tying materials and you're talking about, you know, an average sale of 10 to $15, they need more volume than someone that's selling a $10,000 high end luxury fly fishing trip. Mm -hmm. You know, if they, if they, book a couple of trips through our show that's fantastic yeah. um but you know if you're selling 15 dollar items you need to you know you need to be selling hundreds or thousands of them throughout right. the weekend yeah, yeah that's yeah, another good point so okay well so let's uh let's jump into this rapid fire round uh, my first question for you um you know, obviously your dad got you into fly fishing, uh, similar to my story. Um, but for you, you know, if it wasn't for your dad and, and maybe you didn't get into fly fishing, what, what do you think you would be right now? Well, I was, uh, I was actually a pro skier for 20 years. So oh, wow. I was an avid skier, uh, also grew up surfing my whole life and oh, cool. even did a little competition in that when I was younger. Nice. So is is uh skiing or those will be in there is skiing or, or um or surfing harder or, or maybe harder either to get surfing started is or the hardest surfing is the hardest sport i've ever done yeah um i don't know i was a i was a pole vaulter in high school and that was a pretty challenging sport too but wow. um surfing is very very challenging sport um uh, you know it means you, you require athleticism but you're uh you're on a moving like the earth is moving when you're on it, you know, yeah. on the wave. So you're, yeah, everything's constantly changing. So you also have to be planning in advance and, and thinking things out. Yeah. In fact, I read an interesting article where, you know, surfers um, typically have the stereotype like Spicoli or something, oh, yeah. you know, this um, yeah. <laughs> spacey zoned out dude. Um, but the article was about that, uh, like surfers, and people that are, that have a surfing background are some of the best problem solvers out there mm -hmm. because they they are typically always analyzing. Yeah, that's what you do when you're out there, and it's one of the things that is is very spiritual about surfing is that you you kind of got to focus. It's like fly fishing, when people say they're out fly fishing, they forget about all their other problems. You know, there's always days where you can't, but when you're out there. Um, and you start getting into the zone, you're not thinking about anything else except what you're doing. And the same with, same with, uh, surfing where you really have to focus on what you're doing or, you know, you can get yourself in trouble. You could, you could, you could be, you could drown, you know, if yeah. you're not paying attention. Yeah, no, it's funny. Spicoli, I'll definitely, for those, uh, you know, younger people <laughs> who, who don't know Spicoli, I'll put a link in the show notes for uh, a little clip there on that as well, because that's a great character. Um, yeah yeah and, and actually in my area I think his best. <laughs> what, what's that i think his best <laughs> yeah totally totally um yeah but i in my area i'm not a big surfer I, I do have a surfboard but um i've heard stories about like the local surfers who are just hardcore and they would do all sorts of crazy stuff like if you were surfing their wave out there they would uh, do you know i don't know come over and tip over your car or do sorts of weird stuff did you ever when you were surfing did you see that sort of kind of crazy hardcore um local localized kind of stuff oh for sure there's definitely localism it's 
it's less um, less than it used to be. Uh, you know, same you could face in yeah. some fishing spots where people might be, you know, aggressively protect their right. their turf. That's true. But uh, it was definitely a thing in surfing. Uh, but part of it is that there's a certain hierarchy when you're surfing that you need to learn for you know even ultimately the reason is safety for your safety and other surfers safety if you don't know the way things happen then somebody's going to get hurt it's the same that we learn how to drive a car and we understand the stop sign and you know and rules of the roads but if you never saw a road and you never saw a car and someone gave you a car and said go for it we'd be in accidents all the time and people would be, you know, it it wouldn't be safe. And it's the same reason why some of that happens, um, you know, and that the, the violent natures of it are, are are kind of going away, you know, like, uh, like people are being more educated about bullying in schools and things like that. It still exists, but, um, people try to, uh, you know, educate others that it's not a good thing to do that. And the same thing with surfing. Um, it's kind of a thing that's going away. Hmm. You may see it more in different countries uh, or certain areas. But a lot of that stems from you kind of had to, like, fight your way up to your priority for getting a wave. Gotcha, gotcha. So, and you were, uh, was it the East Coast where you were surfing? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I grew up surfing in the East Coast. And, I mean, we had we had localism where I grew up surfing that, that basically doesn't even exist anymore. Gotcha. Okay. And, um, so yeah, maybe you can finish, uh, this, uh, if I was to ask you a, a sentence here, you could finish this, um, uh, fly fishing needs. What, what, how would you finish that sentence? Kind of where we're at right now, uh, in fly fishing or kind of the stuff you're doing. Less egos. Mm-hmm. <laughs> nice. Nice. So there's still, there's still, that's really interesting because, um, I, uh, God, I had a great interview with Kelly uh, Gallup, um, and we were all over the place in the interview, but, um, I brought that up because I think people think of him as one of those guys that has kind of a big ego, but he doesn't think of himself as that. And uh, it's interesting because I, I think in the past, you know, I've been around fly fishing for quite a while as well. And yeah, the whole ego thing has always been there, but do you think that's, um, lessening as we're going? It is some, but I, I think also the, you know, social media and things like that oh, right. foster it as well. Yep. You know, people get worried about how many likes they have and, and you know, things like that. That's, that's ego. Yeah. You know, it might be mild or soft ego, but it is, um, you know, if you like it, you like it. If you don't, you don't. I mean, if you wanted to share it and you thought it was something worth sharing, that's great. And, uh, and it shouldn't matter how many responses you get from it. If you were the one that wanted to share it. Yep. Yep. Okay. And your, what is your, um, if you had to say your favorite, um, uh, your favorite music, either, either a band or type of music. Oh, I like all kinds of music really, but reggae is probably my favorite. Oh, nice. Yeah. Well, uh, like, uh, little Bob Marley. Yeah, I mean, you know, if you're a fan of reggae, you're pretty much probably you're obligated to say he's true. he's your favorite if you had to choose one. Yep. 
yeah, definitely. Okay, cool. And and what about um, after you get off the river? Do you have a favorite uh, beverage that you like to uh, you know enjoy after a good day on the river? Oh, you know, it depends on the time of the year and the place. Uh-huh. What about, so where, where has been your place? Uh, uh, like I said, I like yeah. to travel, so I like to sample local local things. Uh-huh. What has been, um, sounds like you've traveled all over the place. Do you have a, a location in mind that you've been hitting recently or is a place that you really love to go to? Well, um, you know, I get, I get asked that question actually quite a bit, and the my my favorite next location is simply the next location I get to go fish. Okay. Uh, it could be, could be down the street or on the other side of the planet. Um, I always look forward to where I'm going next. And, you know, one of my favorite things is to try new areas for new species of fish. Uh, I've got like over 300 different species on a fly. And, oh, really? uh, you, you, you know, I always, I always look forward to figuring out the other kinds of fish. That's cool. That's cool. So you've caught, uh, you've caught 300 species on the fly. Mm-hmm. That's, yeah. Over. That's over. I've got to do a tab. I got to do a tab. I've kind of lost track, but I was like around 275 and, you know, a year or so ago. And I've kind of, that's uh, kind of dropped off my, uh, totally. That's, my notes. <laughs> that's awesome because, uh, I've had, uh, Jeff Courier is definitely a, a guest that, you know, I think he's getting close to 400. Mm-hmm. And, uh, when we were chatting, just, um, you know, I was chatting with him. I, I asked him like, who else is out there? That's, um, is there anybody out there even close to you? And he didn't have a good answer, but it sounds like you might be, um, one of those people that's, that's uh, pretty close. Yeah. I mean, when you're getting up to numbers like he is, it's, it's, it's pretty tough, but we fished together and, uh, you know, we did a trip, uh, two years ago to Brazil and I can assure you that there's probably not been anybody that fished that place where we were for some of the fish that Jeff and I fished for. Mm-hmm. Um, we, we, I think over, you know, over the week that we were there, we landed 16 different species on the fly hmm. and, you know, we there's like all these awesome fish you could fish for peacock bass and wolf fish and pyara and uh different things and you know we would be over in like some little corner trying to catch this three inch fish that looked really cool you know in the living in the sticks in some little pocket and (laughs) trying to see if we could catch them because we just like catching different things some of those are the, the most challenging that's sweet. So, so who has the, uh, the, the bigger ego between you and Jeff? <laughs> uh, you know, Jeff doesn't have much ego and, you know, yeah. neither do I, I mean, we, we can go somewhere and, and do pretty good fishing, but we've both fished enough places that we've got, you know, we've got it handed to us. So we we know that as soon as you get there, that's when, uh, that's when you have a bad trip. Um, I, I tend to try to go on a trip with, you know, I have expectations, but they might be, uh, the best trips that I have, I have lower expectations. I mean, I'll go there and I'll be like, man, I hope I catch one of these. Right. I just hope I catch one. You know, sometimes even like, I hope I see one, you know, and, and in the end, uh, I might have a great trip. Like I, you know, and you can slowly raise your bar while you're there. But if you go, you know, hoping you, you're going to have a great trip, like you've never permit fish, you're like, oh, I'm going to go catch 20 of them. 
No. You're probably setting yourself up for a lot of disappointment. I yeah. would just hope that I got a shot at a permit on a trip, and that's one of my favorite fish to fish for. Right. But, you know, like, for example, I just did a trip uh, to Brazil for Arapaima that mm-hmm. actually might be coming out in a in a new film. Or oh, cool. I know it will be. Um, but, you know, I went with the goal, hoping to see one, hoping to catch one. I only had three days. Mm. Um, and... You know, we the first day we ended up, and the guy I ended up fishing with, which was not who I was planning with to do some changes in schedule, but I just ended up fishing with a random guy, and we hit it off. He was a good angler, uh, actually involved in the industry a little bit, and so we knew a lot of mutual friends. But we ended up having, I think, uh, the guide said it was maybe his second most best day that he ever had. Wow. And... Uh, I think we caught like uh forget what we caught that day. Sixteen sixteen Arapaima. I was hoping to catch one in three yeah. days. First day we got sixteen. Amazing. Um and then you, we started seeing some bigger ones and my you know, my standard, you know, kinda of went up and I ended up uh with one that was almost two and a half meters and over three hundred pounds. So Jeez, and it was really? a really successful trip and my yeah. goal was to see one. So <laughs> that's amazing. That was amazing. Now I'm, I was just, now I'm jaded. I don't know if I would go back. That's cool. <laughs> I don't yeah, know if I, I could I, ever do that well. I, I, I was just getting ready to ask you. Uh, Jeff told a uh, a crazy story about one of his trips, and I was just getting ready to ask you that. But that's a pretty good uh, story right there in itself. Um, so yeah, all good. Well, when that comes out, I'll, I'll add a link into the show notes for hopefully for that video too down the line. Since this. Uh, this episode will be out there for a while, but, um, yeah, we're, we're just about there. Um, just had a couple other quick ones. Um, do you have a, like a go-to piece of gear? It doesn't necessarily have to be fly fishing. It sounds like you've done a lot of traveling, something you don't leave home without. Hmm. Well, I really don't leave home without anything for fly fishing. Like I might go on a trip or something else, but I always try to throw a fly rod in there because you never know mm-hmm. so i'd like to like to have something in there but you know as far as fly fishing i i, I do have an answer for that it's a little more well known now but when i first started fishing with sinking lines i built my own yep. out of a lead core trolling line before they really even had them uh, readily available. And I, I don't go anywhere without some sinking lines because I've, I've literally opened up new water in places because, you know, some of my saltwater experience and background with sinking lines, you take it to a place where people never use them. And all of a sudden they're going from like, Oh yeah, it's just slow fishing today. And you're like, well, let's try over there to get deeper. And all of a sudden you're catching a bunch of fish. And I'm like, wow. Right. Okay, cool. So I always carry uh, some fly fishing uh, or some sinking lines in my fly fishing gear, no matter where I'm. If I'm going flats fishing, I have some sinking lines with yep. me. May never take them out. Sure. But sometimes when the going gets tough, you know, I've been in, hit some flats fishing days where it's like horrible weather, and you go start casting a sinking line and some channels, and you you catch some uh, really awesome fish. Yeah. Yeah, that's cool. That's a, a good tip as well. When um, if you think about the show, the fly fishing show, say we go a hundred years out into the future, and I'm not sure if it'll still be around, and uh, you know, at that point, but um, you know, what would you want people to remember about the show? You know, when they if they look back and say it, it isn't still running, is there anything that sticks out to you that you guys are you, you know kind of want to be remembered for? 
The fly fishing show. Yeah, sure. Um, bringing the sport to more people and, and creating educational opportunities. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You're, you're definitely, um, that's our, that's our ultimate goal. Yeah. And is that when you look at, you know, a success of whether it's any given year or event or anything, you know, you mentioned the numbers about people through the door and all that, but is there a way that you uh, judge success of your events differently or, or how do you, you know, determine whether it was a successful event? Um, that's a good question because I have, I get lots of people at the shows, um, exhibitors or speakers or whoever, um, asking me if it, they thought it was a success. And I usually turn the question around and ask them the same thing. And if they say yes, then I say, well, then it was a success for me because my goal is to make it successful for those, um, right. involved. Gotcha. You know, if, if one of our exhibitors has a great show, then that means you know, I had a great show. If they all have a great show, then I had a really great show. Yeah. Okay. And, uh, this is a little bit of a, uh, maybe a selfish question, but, uh, you know, if I am up at the event up there this year, any, um, tips for me, how, you know, I might do a good job of covering, I'm, I'm hoping to, you know, talk to as many people as possible and just get around and, and maybe do an episode out of it, but, but I'm not sure any tips you'd give somebody that wants to go up there and kind of cover the event and come back and give people a perspective on what it's about. On on that specific event or any of them? Uh, yeah, just any of them in general. I mean, I, I guess if there's, I, I probably oh. will be at the Washington event, so if something does stick out there, you could touch on that. But yeah, just just generally, I know there's going to be at least one other podcast I know of that's going to be kind of at, at the uh, at the shows. But um, yeah, just curious for myself, I'd like mm-hmm. to do my best to to maybe showcase what you have going, or just you know do my best at networking and things like that. Oh, sure. For, for like someone in your shoes, um, you can always reach out to me about some of the speakers that are there and I can put you in touch. So you can do some, um, you can, you could do a podcast with them before or after the mm-hmm. show and talk about some of the, some of what they're going to talk about at the show. So customers can come in uh, a little more educated on what they're looking to find out. Yeah. Um, you know, even though like, George said not to talk about this thing. I'm sure, you know, if you were talking to him about something and said, you're going to be doing some presentations on nymphing, you know, what, what can people get out of that? Yeah. It's not necessarily talking about the nymphing, but what they're going to gain by seeing them. Um, the same with, uh, you know, any of the speakers, but that could also be why, uh, you know, he didn't want to talk about some of that because some of the speakers want you to come to find that information out at the shows rather than having it available. Um, you know, like you were saying about the, uh, your virtual information, you know, some of it is kept, kept sort of, um, let's not say private, but kept where to, where the speaker has a value in doing their presentation for a year or so. And then they may make it available. They may even put it in a book. A lot of them base their talks like George off of, off of their upcoming book that might come out. So they're releasing some of the information in advance. You get to learn from them in in person. And then you know that, man, I better buy that book because he did a really good talk on this and I want all the information that he has. So, you know, then that comes out and they may be moving on to their, their next topic. Yep. Yeah, no, that's a, that's good. Good points. Okay. Um, 
Well, Ben, I guess that's about all I have for you. I just want to check, you know, in the next six to 12 months, if you have anything other than the shows, you know, that over the next few months here, you're going to be hitting that. Anything else you want to note that's come, coming up that you have going on you want to share with your, yourself personally or the show? Oh, no. I'll be, you know, personally, I'm just going to be tied up and, and working like a madman um, through the show season. Uh, what a lot of people don't really understand is, you know, at this point, Practice as I'm talking to you right now, I just got a message about um, some something for uh, 2020. So at this point, we're starting to already plan for our 2020 shows. Uh-huh. Uh, speakers that might be interested should be starting to you know discuss with with us about their their hopes and thoughts. And exhibitor contracts should be uh, coming out very shortly for exhibitors to lock in their booths for 2020. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, just at the shows, uh, working on making sure that everybody knows about them. That's ultimately the goal. Um, if everybody knows about them, then what we should have successful events, bar any, you know, events that are outside of our control, like a snowstorm or something of that sort, which sometimes we face, but that's why we have more than one event to diversify a little bit. Gotcha. Yeah. Okay, cool. And if people want to find you the best place, uh, where, where should we send them if they have questions or want to connect with you? Yeah. Um, flyfishingshow.com is the best place to find out information. There's all of our schedule on it, as well as information on what's happening at each of the events. Uh, we have travel information there for people coming from out of town, which many do, uh, as well as all the, you know, the local attendees. Uh, we have, we do discounted blocks, for hotel rooms for our guests as well as exhibitors, which can actually be quite fun. I mean, I've talked to many exhibitor or many guests that come to a show and stay at the hotel, and you know they may be sitting at the bar in the hotel just you know having a drink, and you know then they realize they're sitting next to Bob Clouser or something, yeah. and, and you know it, it's you know it, it they come back and they're like it was so worth staying there because you know I got to be friend become friends with these guys and. You know, they were my idols, and, and here I was, like, sitting next to them, and I didn't even know it was them. And nice. It was a pretty fun stories to hear. So staying the whole weekend can be really fun, um, and uh, as well as all of our contact information, if you're looking to inquire as an exhibitor or a speaker, that's all on the website. So you can find, find everything you need to get in touch with us, and we're always happy to answer questions. Okay, perfect. All right, Ben. Well, I'll let you get going. Just wanted to thank you for coming on and, and sharing uh, all the information here. I'll definitely, um, like I mentioned, be at the show, I think, up in Washington. So hopefully I'll, I'll connect with you. But, yeah, I appreciate you uh, doing what you do and, and helping everybody get into fly fishing and kind of growing the uh, the community out there. So we'll hope to uh, keep in touch with you. Yeah, sounds good. I look forward to seeing, seeing you up there. And if you uh, need any connections to line up prior to the event i'm more than happy to do that as well as for any other uh, listeners that might be out there that are are looking to pre-plan for some things at the at the show we're always willing to help all right perfect all right thanks a lot ben we'll talk to you later all right thanks bye i see you so there you go if you want to find all the show notes with all the links we covered, just go to wetflyswing.com slash 61. And if you want to support the show, head over to wetflyswing.com slash support and join the little uh, micro movement we have going on. Thanks again for stopping by to check out the show today. I'm looking forward to catching up with you soon and hope to maybe connect with you on the river or online. Thanks for listening to the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Show. 
For notes and links from this episode, visit wetflyswing.com. And if you found this episode helpful, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes.